Hello, welcome along for episode number 113 of Turkey Book Talk. That there in the background is Bedia Akartuk singing Chikma Karshima or Don't Cross My Path, another appropriate one for COVID-19. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Thanks for joining. I'm happy to accompany whatever household chore you currently find yourself doing. In this episode, we speak to Ayfer Karakaya Stump. She's Associate Professor at the College of William and Mary, and she's the author most recently of The Kizilbash Alevis in Ottoman Anatolia, Sufism, Politics and Community, which was published a few months ago by Edinburgh University Press. The book is the product of years of painstaking research in private family archives in villages across Turkey. It effectively traces the origins of today's Alevis as a unified religious group back to the 15th and 16th centuries. It was then that she says various diverse Sufi groups started for various reasons that we discuss later to identify as what was then called Kizilbash in a more unified way. We also discussed how this connects to Alevis today and their place in modern Turkey. And if you listen carefully, you'll be able to pick up a lot of themes, no doubt, from our previous episode with Ryan Gingeras on the early Republican era. But first, let me remind you once again that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Presumably, you'll have plenty of time these days to browse the archive of transcripts of every one of our interviews in English and Turkish that signed up members get access to. That archive also includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottawa. Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. It's a good excuse to put away that copy of Anna Karenina that you thought you'd be finally getting stuck into while you're in quarantine. Finally, as a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ayfer Karakaya Stump. We get into the main thrust of her research with documents dating back to the 15th and 16th centuries shortly, but I started by asking her about the situation today. By some estimates, Alevis make up up to 10 or 15% of Turkey's population, and debate around them often focuses on whether Alevism is a branch within Islam or actually a completely separate religious belief. I asked Ayfer for her take on this debate. For outsiders, Alevis, generally, they are subsumed under Shi'i Islam, but I find that very problematic, and I think Alevis themselves find it very problematic, too, because the Alevis, they share in common with mainstream Shia an attachment to Ali and the 12 Imams. But they are clearly set apart from them. So mainstream Shiism, as we know it, it's a Sharia-centric legalistic tradition, whereas Alevism is an esoteric religious system. And that's a major difference. And in practice, you see this difference in uh, the fact that uh, Alevis do not observe any of the formal obligations of normative Islam, whether it's Shi'i or Sunni, and their main ritual practice known as gem. These are rituals where both men and women participate and they use mystical poetry and music. 
So objectively speaking, even though they do have some commonalities with the mainstream Shia world, they are really very different and very distinct. In terms of your other question, so how do we position Alevism vis-a-vis in general? Uh, as you said, there is a debate going on for a long time, of course, and still today, the Sunni and Shi'i establishment, they did not view Alevis as part of Islam. They they viewed them as, as, as heretical, just like they viewed other such groups like the Ahli Haq in Iran, like the Yazidis, like the Nusayri, Alawites. Those are all groups that were viewed as heretical by uh, the main body of the Islamic Ummah. But the, the same groups themselves, traditionally, at least in the case of the Alevis, they did consider themselves disconnected from the mainstream uh, Muslims and their legalistic orientation and textual literalism. So today, the Alevis, they function more or less as an autonomous religious community, but at the theoretical level, there is a division within the Alevi community itself, some viewing Alevism as, as an esoteric current within Islam, others claiming that Alevism should be recognized as a, a separate autonomous religious tradition. What I have seen in my own research, what I do is I use sources and documents in the private archives of Alevi saintly lineages. So based on internal sources, I try to trace back the histories of these families. And what I have found is that we can locate the origins of these families, hence the Alevi tradition at large, in some esoteric marginalized currents within Sufism broadly defined. That's what my argument is. I don't think it's correct to view Alevism or, or, or to, to try to understand the origins of Alevism, rubric of Shiism. I think their origins, based on their own internal sources, can be traced back to some contrary Sufi movements, uh, non-conformist strains within mystical Islam at large. So we're going to come back onto the position of Alevis in today's Turkey a bit later on. But as you say there, your book is largely concerned with the uh, late medieval or early modern period. Uh, so the 15th, 16th centuries, basically, because that is when a distinct uh, Alevi or Kizilbash identity uh, began to emerge. And it was uh, linked yes. to clashes in Anatolia between um, non-conforming, unorthodox Sufi groups, which came to be known as uh, Kizilbash groups. And uh, the Ottoman state in the in the 16th century, particularly, and these kind of waves of uh, persecutions um, against these unorthodox groups. Just take us back to that era very broadly. You know, this is the the key kernel, really, of of the book. So, of course, this has a lot to do with uh, the Ottoman state and its evolution and its relationship to various Dervish and Sufi groups. In the earlier periods, the Ottoman state's approach to, to, to Islam is, is somewhat more liberal because the Ottomans drive their legitimacy in these earlier periods from, from warfare against uh, the infidels, the, the, the Christians in the Balkans. So they don't really try to impose a particular Islamic orthodoxy on its subjects. Anybody who is on the side of Islam fighting against the infidels are welcome uh, subjects of the uh, of the Ottomans. 
but then what happens is uh, at the time of Bayezid uh, II, like the early 1500s, we see the rise of uh, the Safavids uh, on the one hand, and also a number of messianic millenarian currents taking over in the entire Eurasian continent. So the Ottoman state is forced to redefine itself and the basis of its legitimacy. And by the way, under Bayezid II, expansionist conquest movements in the Balkans have also come to an end temporarily. So now we have an Ottoman Empire with more stable borders. So fighting against the infidels, you know, this that, that sort of expansionist legitimacy claims are no longer as convincing. And then we have the rise of the Savavids. So what happens is within this context, the Ottomans face a legitimacy crisis. And we see this with Yavuz, Yavuz Sultan Selim. Under Yavuz, the Ottomans redefine themselves, redefine their legitimacy claims on the basis of uh, being defenders of Sunni orthodoxy rather than being simply the defenders of Islam in general against the infidels. So the Kuzilbash, uh, the non-conformist Sufi groups during this process, of course, come to represent the negative other. So this is sort of a dialectical process too. On the one hand, they have been attracted into the orbit of the Safavids during this whole process, in part because they were being marginalized by the Ottoman state who was going through a process of centralization and orthodoxization. But then the Ottoman state is intensifying their persecution against these groups, well, initially because they view them as as a threat, but in the longer term, by way of boost their claims of being the protectors of orthodoxy. So one function of that was to persecute the heretics. So to prove that you are actually the champion of Sunni orthodoxy, you have to show that you have zero tolerance vis-a-vis those who fall outside of a Sharia-centric Sunni orthodoxy. So the Kuzilbash, during this period, they go through a process of what I call confessionalization. Again, this is a period that historians call the confessional age. We see similar processes in Europe and also among the Sunni and the Shia in the Islamic world. The Kuzilbash go through their own process of confessionalization and being persecuted by the Ottoman state pushes them together, reinforces their internal homogeneity. So at the beginning, the Kuzilbash milieu is made up of a cluster of separate but interconnected non-conformist Sufi and Dervish groups who came together, who formed a coalition under Safavid leadership. But as a result of this confessionalization process, by the end of the 16th century, we have a much more homogeneous Kuzilbash community and identity. It now identifies with this umbrella identity of Kuzilbash. And of course, there is a great deal of uh, Safavid influence in this process as well. The thrust of Kuzilbashism gets reinforced under Safavid influence. But the interesting thing is, despite the Safavid's efforts to sheetize the Kuzilbash in, At- in Anatolia, this is never successful. They never really come under the full sheetization influence of the Safavids. 
So we're talking here about the 16th century. There's this imperial rivalry between the Ottoman dynasty and the Safavid dynasty to the southeast in what's today uh, Iran or Persia. And um, basically, as this rivalry developed, these two empires really shaped each other, actually, in opposition to each other. So uh, as you say there, the Ottoman Empire at this time became much more consciously Sunni, while the Safavid Empire adopted this official creed, really, of uh, Shiism. And uh, the Kizilbash, or Elevis, uh, as they came to be known, have often been characterized as uh, as partisans of the uh, Safavids at this time. And as you mentioned there, Sultan Selim I, he's sometimes known as Selim the Grim in English, uh, but in Turkey, as you say, he's uh, he's known as Yavuz Sultan Selim or Selim the Brave. And he was a key figure here. He reigned from yeah. 1512 to 1520. And uh, he's known uh, today for conquering many parts of the Middle East, capturing the Mamluk Sultanate, uh, among others. And uh, he also, as you say, led the Ottoman Empire against the Safavid Empire and unleashed uh, a wave, really, of persecutions, basically, against uh, Kizilbash groups defending the orthodox Islam against heresy, bolstering the, the Ottoman state self-image there as the foremost beacon of, of Sunni Islam. Could you just talk a bit more about uh, Sultan Selim I and his importance in shaping this, the dynamics that we're talking about in this time? Right. But there's also a larger context to these this sort of competition over legitimacy. So the Ottomans, definitely the Safavids, are a major rival in the East. But in the West, the Ottomans are also rivaling the Habsburgs, uh, Charles V, for instance. So this whole war over legitimacy, because in the entire Eurasian continent, there is this expectation of the end of times. So which religion is going to win over? You know, there is there is competition over that, as well as as sort of internal competitions over who represents the, the, the rival Islamic traditions. So I just wanted to add that. Uh, in terms of Yavuz, yes, it's very interesting. So when you look at Bayezid II's policies vis-a-vis -vis these non-conformist groups, he's definitely aware of the uh, of the rising Safavids, but he does recognize, even though reluctantly, he does recognize Shah Ismail's claims. So he doesn't really want to go to war with the Safavids. He, he accepts their legitimacy. He's not an expansionist sultan. Uh, in fact, Yabu Sultan Selim, Selim the Grim, he uses this argument in his competition with his brothers for the throne. So Yavuz is the least favored candidate among Bayezid's sons for the throne. And to boost his chances by attacking his father for his relatively more conciliatory policies vis-a-vis -vis the Safavids and for his inactive foreign policy, and he presents the Kizilbash as, as an existentialist threat against the Ottomans. That's how Ottoman historiography also writes the story of this rivalry, as if the Safavids actually threatened the heartlands of the Ottomans, which is really not supported by evidence. Uh, but Yavuz uses this anti-Kizilbash rhetoric to redefine the terms of competition with his brothers and uh, eventually, in fact, wins the throne. And with Yavuz, conquest in infidel territories is replaced or substituted with conquest uh, in the Arab Middle East. He integrated the Arab countries into, into Ottoman domains. He never really, he was unable to destroy uh, Safavid Iran, but he did definitely make a lot of conquests in the rest of the uh, of the Islamic Middle East. So from from from 
that point onwards, what at the beginning was a, a rivalry for the Ottoman throne and was a rivalry between two royal families, the Ottomans and the Safavids, eventually it acquired a much larger ideological significance within this broader context of enhanced millenarian messianic uh, sensibilities of the 16th century and the two empires uh, came to identify with Sunnism and Shiism. So initially, the rivalry up until the middle of like Suleiman the Magnificent's reign, the son of Yavuz, all these empires in, in Eurasia, they were competing for a world empire because that was the expectation that one dynasty would create a world empire and control the entire known world, and that would sort of unleash the end of times, and then the Messiah would come. But by the middle of the 16th century, all these imperial, major imperial powers, including the Habsburgs, the, the Ottomans, and the Safavids, and the Mughals, they realized that uh, they are unable to get rid of their rivals. So they settled to a new status quo, whereby each of them represents a particular creed in their own religious traditions. It's at that point that the Ottomans also sort of relegate themselves to, to, to being the champions of Sunni orthodoxy, uh, and then the Sh Iran, the champions of Shiism. And as you know, the border between Iran and Turkey has remained for centuries. So they sort of, even though at the level of rhetoric, they still uh, demonize one another. In, in practice, they did recognize each other's legitimacy. As a side note, we're talking about uh, Yavuz Sultan Selim there. The uh, uh, listeners might be aware that the uh, third bridge over the Bosphorus, which was opened in 2016, is officially called the uh, Yavuz Sultan Selim Bridge. Uh, and that, uh, when it opened, uh, drew a lot of uh, controversy among uh, Alevis uh, because of that name and because of Yavuz Sultan Selim's role uh, in the 16th century. This all perhaps makes us uh, reconsider really that classic idea that we all have really of um, Ottoman tolerance, I suppose. You know, you in the book sort of indirectly pour a bit of cold water on that really you know saying that um in this period that you were studying the 16th century window um the kizilbash for example were constantly persecuted uh, in fact to a much greater extent than the christians or jews of uh, of the ottoman territories for example and one of the reasons why the persecutions at that time were much more vicious in comparison with non-muslim groups is that they were often seen as the uh, internal enemy actually within the ottoman polity and that's a very dangerous thing to be really and it made the the persecutions much more intense just talk about that idea really of Ottoman tolerance and how the Alevis fit into it and the Kizilbash in the 16th century, how they were kind of seen as this internal enemy that have, had to be expunged and in a way that was uh, distinct from various Christian or Jewish or, or other religious groups. Right. So, uh, as you know, according to Islamic Jews and Christians can live under an Islamic state, provided that they pay an extra tax and then observe some other limitations. But like in any other religious tradition, minorities within that tradition, the internal enemies are treated really harshly. And in the case of Islam, despite this tolerance vis-a-vis -vis other Abrahamic traditions, you know, you see the same tendency 
of persecuting, expunging, as you said, uh, groups that are viewed the internal enemies, because those are the ones who are actually challenging the very foundations of your uh, uh, belief system. Now, the interesting thing here is there is a direct connection, I think, between uh, the 16th century, the events in the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, and the way the Ottomans defined who was an acceptable subject, who was an acceptable Sunni Muslim, and the definition, the official definition of an acceptable citizen in modern Turkey. Because as in the European context, there's well, these processes of confessionalization, oftentimes those processes led to the creation of the modern state and the idea of citizens who were well integrated with their states. In the Ottoman Empire, this definition, so the acceptable subjects of the empire, they were defined in terms of Sunni Islam. Uh, and that definition could tolerate ethnic diversity, but was obviously religiously very narrowly defined. And when we come to a modern Turkey, even though theoretically the modern Turkish state was based on the Turkish identity, when you look a little closer to what really underlines Turkishness, you see that it has a lot to do with Sunni Islam. So the modern Turkish state could easily integrate a lot of Muslims from the Balkans and the Caucasus who had to escape their own sort of persecution. Despite their different ethnic backgrounds, they could be easily tolerated under this umbrella identity of Turkishness, which was very much based on Sunni Islam. But the same modern Turkish state had a lot of problems with the Kızılbaş, now known more as, as Alevis, even though uh, Alevis, a significant portion of them, are actually Turkmens, and, and you know the Alevi poetry tradition, music tradition, they form a key component of traditional Turkish literature and, and music and so on and so forth. So the fact that the name Yevuz was given to the bridge a rearticulation of that uh, commitment, I think, to uh, to the Sunni identity, even though, like I said, nowadays it's sometimes coded as, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, under Turkishness or yerlilik ve millilik, you know, being local, being national. The Sunni component of the official Turkish identity is still, is still very strong. And uh, as, as you know, it was very offensive for the Alevis that uh, this bridge was named after somebody who, like, who was persecuted, according to historical records, thousands of people for non-conforming to Sunni Islam and for, for, for being Kizilbash. Now, the sources that you uh, examine in the book are particularly difficult, and uh, it's not just because of the fact that they go back many centuries, uh, but they're often very disparate, remote, uh, non-centralized, obscure, really, uh, very hard to reach sources that you were dealing with. Just talk about that aspect, you know, th this research, I believe, took many years. Uh, how did you go about tracking down sources? And in fact, what were those, uh, what were those sources? 
Uh, I mean, for a long time, when I was an undergraduate and then a graduate student, we were led to believe that Alevism is a purely orally based tradition. And anyway, you know, the uh, the origins of it was often typically relegated to the world of some timeless syncretism, uh, allegedly blended Islam with various foreign elements rooted in some obscure distant past. So the Alevi tradition was not even viewed as, as, a, as a coherent religious tradition that deserves any studying, and, and, and its orality was used as an explanation for uh, eclecticism and, and for, for it being in sort of this amorphous thing. Uh, but then in the late 1980s and early 90s, there was this Alevi cultural revival sort of started talking about their own traditions and, and, and, and publishing books and stuff. And from those from those popular publications, we came to the realization that Alevis actually had a very interesting internal socio-religious organization. And moreover, the Alevi Dedes, the members of the, uh, the Alevi saint the lineages, that they actually had genealogies and other sorts of documents like that in their own private archives. But of course, these were documents that they made sure to hide from the gaze of outsiders, oftentimes because they feared that the state might confiscate them, which actually those, those such things did occur. Uh, so I, I initially I was thinking that I would just use the uh, material in the Ottoman archives, but then when I looked into these uh, documents in in people's private archives, I realized that there that there was a big treasure out there uh, that could shed a completely new light on uh, on this tradition. Uh, so we started spending our summers in Turkey, going from one village to another, and then for a year and a half to to do my dissertation research. Uh, this was in uh, 2000 and 2001, I believe. For, for a year and a half, we continued more systematically our visits to Alevi villages. Over time, I was able to collect pictures of hundreds of documents and manuscripts. And then, of course, after a while, these Alevi families, they came to know me and respect me. And so for the last several years now, I don't have to go to villages. People just send me their documents, pictures of their documents. But these are very, very interesting documents. They have been preserved in people's private archives for centuries. These are uh, genealogies, shajarez, Sufi diplomas, also uh, various documents that were issued by Ottoman authorities, by the Ottoman courts, and many other sort of more mundane documents, letters, so on and so forth. And yeah, the, the interesting thing is these documents not only shed completely new light on these communities and where they come from, like I said, they, they, they show, among other things, the policy of treating them through the rubric of Shiism, because these documents, you know, when we follow them, Chronologically, they, they, they take us to Iraq, the cradle of Sufism, and the oldest one of them that I personally studied dates from the late 14th century. There are several of them from the from the 15th century, 16th centuries, and they come all the way uh, to the early uh, 20th century. So these documents not only tell us a completely new story about these communities, but they also shed new light on the histories, religious and cultural histories of Anatolia and the neighboring 
Cameroon regions. You know, I want to uh, remind our listeners that uh, even on the, in the Ottoman archives, there are very few documents that go to periods earlier than Suleiman's reign. I mean, even from the reign of uh, Yavuz the Grim, we have a very limited number of documents. So the fact that you find such old documents in private archives is is is, is truly amazing. There are, of course, a lot of challenges with studying these documents, and I have spent over 20 years trying to decipher them because they are multilingual and they they have very peculiar difficulties. But it also has been an extremely rewarding uh, experience for me. Now, bringing things closer to the present day, you spend quite a bit of space in the book also talking about Fuat Kupulu, and he uh, is interesting because he's one of the founding historians, really, of the uh, Republic of Turkey, a very influential figure, and he had very specific, very influential ideas about how Elevis fit into the history of uh, Anatolia, really, and the history of Turks, basically. Could you briefly summarise what his thesis was and why it was so influential, and also the controversies? around it. Right. So Fuat Kuprulu was, uh, uh, he was a very smart man. Uh, he was also a politician. He's the founding father of uh, Turkish nationalist historiography. Keep in mind the time period here, uh, 1920s, 30s. This is when uh, the new modern Turkish identity was being formed. And there was actually very little Turkishness, I, I suppose, to be found in the cosmopolitan Ottoman culture. So they had to look elsewhere. And Kuprulu and many others, sort of the, the nationalist intellectuals in this period, they looked for the Turkish component, you know, for, for the continuation of the Central Asian tradition. They looked for that in these groups, specifically uh, uh, the Kızılbaş, because the rituals, the language that Kızılbaş Alevis use, the language that they use in their uh, rituals is Turkish. Their poetry is in Turkish. They they play the balama, the quintessential uh, Turkish folk instrument, so on and so forth. So Köprülü wanted to create a direct continuity between Central Asia and Anatolia, hence between pre-Islamic Turkish culture and identity and the uh, Anatolian Turks. There was, of course, uh, there were other sort of dynamics shaping his thinking, such as the 19th century Christian missionaries who were the first ones to discover the Kızılbaş Alevis in modern times. I have written a lot about the, these encounters. It was these Christian missionaries, Protestant missionaries fr- from the U.S., who first used the term syncretism for the Kuzilbash belief system. They said these people, they just sort of ancient Christians or ancient pagans of Anatolia who only became nominally uh, Muslim and they sort of mixed up different elements of different traditions. So Köprülü and a number of sort of nationalist Ottoman, late Ottoman intellectuals, it was really through the missionaries that they were sort of alerted about these communities uh, once again, you know, the missionaries interest in these communities also gave rise to a, to a renewed interest among the nationalist Ottoman intellectuals in these communities. And interestingly, they used the same conceptual framework as the missionaries to, to sort of come up with their own narrative about Kuzilbash origins. So whereas the missionaries claimed the Kuzilbash were crypto-Christians or pagans, the nationalists including the Köprülü, they said, yes, this is a syncretistic belief system, but uh, the sort of non-Islamic elements in their belief system, they are nothing but 
survivals of pre-Islamic Turkic culture, especially shamanistic beliefs. So that was that was sort of Köprülü's idea. But of course, the problem with Köprülü, and, and so I call it the Köprülü paradigm, it is the dominant paradigm about the Kızılbaşı Alevis, both in Turkey and in international scholarship. Still, whenever, whenever anybody uh, writing in English, typically, you know, they would make either, they would make a reference either directly to Köprülü or to one of his, uh, to uh, İran Melikov or Ahmet Yaşar Ocak, who sort of follow closely in, in Köprülü's footsteps. But then, of course, there were a lot lot of uh, problems. Uh, at this point, I'm putting aside sort of this, this very this internal tension that is still not resolved in the official Turkish nationalist discourse between its emphasis on Turkishness versus its groundedness in Sunni Islam. So I'm leaving that aside. But another sort of major internal tension or, or blind spot in Köprülü's thinking is the existence of Kurdish and Kırmanj-speaking Alevis. Köprülü only viewed uh, Kızılbaş Alevism as a purely Turkmen, Turkmen phenomenon, which obviously is not true, because today there is a very significant, and I think the numbers are usually underestimated, but very significant Kurdish and Zaza-speaking uh, Alevis in Turkey. And despite some episodes, let's say, in early Republican Turkey, specifically the um, campaign, the military campaign to basically take control of uh, Dersim or Tunceli, which is a province in eastern Anatolia, it was a very bloody campaign which involved a pretty ruthless cracking down on, on the locals there in 1938. Despite that, Alevis are often seen really as staunch defenders of the Republic. There is this sort of tension there as well, because, you know, there are these episodes in the early Republican period. Just tease that question out a bit, really, you know, this idea of them as being the kind of quintessential model citizens, really, of the Republic, but also them, a sense that the early Republican elites tried to also shoehorn them into this official history that was being formed at the time. Uh, yes, so there is this unresolved tension in the official nationalist ideology of the country. So, as you said, the model citizen, even though at least in the earlier periods, it was supposed to be based on Turkishness, and Turkishness was very much grounded in, in Sunni Islam. So there's that unresolved, still today, there's that unresolved tension between uh, sort of the official Turkish identity and and, and and, and the Sunni identity. Uh, so, so if you define the model citizen in terms of uh, sort of the Turkish identity, especially if you define it uh, not based on your genetics, but based on citizenship, that of course opens up space for minorities such as the Kızılbaş. Whereas the, the more sort of commonplace informal understanding, sometimes formal too, especially since the 1980s military coup d'etat, where whereby you closely identify Turkishness with Sunni Islam, that, of course, does not leave any space for religious minorities, especially for the Alevis. And this is reflected in the Alevis self-positioning vis-a-vis the Turkish Republic. So, of course, from their perspective, having a at least theoretically secular state based on the idea of sort of nation-state was a major positive change because officially in the Ottoman Empire, the 
only discourse about the Kuzelbash Alevis was a religious one, and they were viewed as heretical who had to be persecuted, basically, even though in practice, of course, this was not, you know, the Alevis were not constantly being persecuted. Oftentimes, they were sort of don't ask, don't tell policy was, was followed by the Ottoman officials after the 16th century. But still, the official rhetoric was one of uh, sort of religious heresy. Whereas when you come to the modern Republic of Turkey, at least theoretically, uh, you no longer have demonizing rhetoric of uh, sort of heretics who are trying to undermine Islam from within and then who deserve being killed, so on and so forth. Uh, at least on the surface of it, now you have an official rhetoric that opens up space for the Kuzelbash Alevis, especially the secularism aspect of, of the Republic. Again, to what extent was this ideal of secularism actually implemented is another question, but it at least gave the Alevis a platform uh, within which they could make claims for equal citizenship. But of course, as any other uh, nation building process, the nation building process within Turkey was also quite bloody. This is uh, unfortunately not unique to Turkey. We see this in a lot of other contexts. And in the case of Turkey, like I said, this the official identity was very much based on Sunni Islam. So non-Muslims were no longer desirable. Also non-Sunni elements were no longer desirable. And in the case of Dersim, of course, you also have this problem of a region that was historically very autonomous, where the state had a hard time penetrating. So, you know, another ideal of the modern nation state is its sort of centralizing drive, and they wanted to bring under control every region within their domains. So, yes, there was a, a bloody repression, a massacre in the Darsim region. But despite this, the Alevis, they are known as supporters of the secular ideals of the Turkish Republic, and they tend to vote for the JHP, the Republican People's Party. So I think even though this might be viewed as, in some ways, you know, again, internal tension-ridden, it's still uh, understandable because... From the perspective of the Alevis, the alternative is a Sunni-dominated religious regime, which, uh, in fact, is, is sort of partially in place now under under AKP. And Alevis have really suffered under uh, the Islam Islamizing policies uh, of AKP in the last, well, si since the year 2000, but especially since 2011, the obligatory religious classes, uh, the uh, the formal and informal discrimination Alevis face, so on and so forth. For them, the secular nationalist discourse, the Kemalist discourse, appears as a refuge against the growing tide of top-to-down uh, Islamization uh, of AKP. That was Ifair Karakaya Stump. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 113. While I've still got your attention, let me remind you to check out Turkey Book Talk's excellent partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe or follow the link that I'll put in our show notes, including at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. 
If you find yourself liking Turkey Book Talk, do consider becoming a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Tourist Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me. All that is no doubt perfect if you're looking for more to read during these times of coronavirus. For all that, all you have to do is pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks stay safe and thank you very much for listening Karışım, makarışım